I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. Paul's not here this week, and I'm not saying this has anything to do with it. Uh, but after his comments on esports last week, Steve and I will be staying away from the North Korea jokes this time. Uh, but I'm here, I'm Steve W, and Steve D is with me as well. Uh, how are you, Steve? How's your week been? Uh, not too bad, Steve, to be honest. It, it's been a little bit sort of red in the markets, I think. Um, but it's picked up a little bit today. Uh, I'm just looking at my portfolio now, it's up about 0.2%, um, which is uh, which is nice because it was down about 1.5% on the up, and there was, uh, everything seemed to take a little fall and then and, and then it's recovered. Uh, in terms of what I've been doing, I've been buying a little bit of Alstom, which is a, a train uh, rolling stock company that we covered uh, a couple of weeks ago. I've been trimming here and there, taking a little bit of risk off the table. And uh, I've also got to tell you, Steve, that my uh, my Tesla, my, my Model 3, has developed a brand new feature to go with um, exploding paintwork and crunching suspension. <laughs> um, now, every time you open a door in the car, the alarm goes off. Which is one of, uh, I must admit, my neighbours are absolutely enamoured with this feature when I get into my car to go to work at 20 to 8 in the morning. How's your week been, Steve? Wow, <sighs> what a week that's been, huh? Um, so starting with markets, I guess, I've been looking at a thing called the CNN Fear and Greed Index. Uh, if you type this into Google, what you'll see in front of you when you get there is a picture of what looks like a kind of analogue dial. Uh, and it's not an analog dial, obviously. It's um, it's a kind of digital uh, thing, and it's not even a real physical object. But what it attempts to do is tell you uh, measure market sentiment, basically. Um, and it picks up on things like momentum and put call ratios and volatility and uh, stock market breadth and stock market strength and so on and so forth. All the kinds of things that traders like that I don't think either of us really uses in our decision making particularly and i'll be honest in some of these cases i'm not actually sure what it means but um it's a pretty good way of measuring sentiment so whether the market's looking fearful or whether the market's looking greedy and i'm not saying i would use that as a way of saying buy stocks now or don't buy stocks now but it's it's good to kind of have in mind here and i was looking in for the first time this week the the fear and greedometer, uh, as I'm going to call it for the moment, um, just tipped over onto the greed side just briefly, just got itself above 50. It's been in fear or extreme fear, uh, the two kind of left hand sides of the dial for quite a while now. Um, and it's thought, I sort of felt vindicated by this a little bit. I won't tease what's coming particularly, but I've been thinking that this is a market that looks to me increasingly like the market of a year or a year and a half ago rather than a sort of a month and a month and a half ago. Stuff appears to be kind of running up quite well. Uh, the underlying economy and the economic situation to me doesn't seem to be improving terribly. Uh, there's talk that it might along the way, but it does look like stocks are getting excited. And I've been finding buying opportunities harder and harder to come by, especially after this kind of earnings call. So Steve, you and I had said for a while you've got new money it's not the hardest thing in the world to just find amazon or disney uh at these prices amazon and disney have both shot up uh following their last earnings and now it is a slightly harder uh proposition it's probably not impossible to be honest but to just find one of those two but this makes me i have some sympathy here with your kind of 
risk off instinct here. It feels to me like the time when I was buying quote unquote valuey things rather than quote unquote growthy things. It doesn't look like this is the kind of golden moment to get into stocks that everyone knows are great and are kind of beaten down because the market in general is falling right now. So I've been thinking about that a fair bit this week. Yeah, um, yeah, I think we've been we've obviously been sharing the same the same thought. It's been a busy week. It's trying to take me away from the markets, but it's been hard to ignore. Um, you know, your you companies like Mercado Libra that have run up thirty percent already since I bought. Um, you, you know, your Intuits have gone all the way from being thirty percent down to well in the green. Etsy has gone from you know being forty percent down to being. Uh, five or six percent in the green these are all really really big recoveries in a really short period of time so um i'd heavily average down in a lot of these stocks so it was only too sensible that i then you know remove the over allocation to them and and start to just you know i had a quite concentrated portfolio i concentrated it right down to 24 positions that i was really drilling down the the average prices on and now that that's that that tension has relaxed a little bit i've just been i've just been taking a few profits off the table and um and just looking at other stocks as well. So, I mean, like I've been adding just a, a little bit into the dividend side. I've actually brought my yield up from about 1.1% to 1.7% on the uh, on the overall edge of the portfolio. So it's uh, it's gone up quite a bit. Um, I'm still looking, really. I'm, I've flexed from 24 positions up to 30. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's room to take a couple more in there, perhaps. How about you? Yeah, nice. So I, I've been sitting tight just for the moment, but I'm not entirely sure that a, a move isn't sort of coming for me. It feels like at the time I, at the start of the year, I kind of made a, an agreement with myself or part of my kind of New Year's resolution was to sell less because uh, we sort of said in a previous show that one of the things that when we think about what we regret in our kind of stock market performance, it generally begins with selling this thing at this thing. Um, or not buying this thing at this thing. And generally, it's not the stuff that we bought that went horribly wrong or something like that. And not to say there hasn't been stuff that's done that, but it's that we sold stuff too soon. So I thought, I'm going to try and sit off selling a little bit. And then we suddenly got some volatility, and I had a massive reorganization of my portfolio and told it with myself it's going to be the last time I did that, uh, basically. Um, and the stuff I bought has generally gone up quite a bit. Um, and the stuff that I sold has in some cases actually come down quite significantly in that big choppy uh, period, which makes me very tempted to try and reorganize to put things back the way they were before. I sort of start to lose my sense of what's my true self and what's the kind of part of me that's um, just kind of hiding out for the time being, as it were. I mean, am I really the kind of person who wants to own Bank of America or am I really the kind of person who wants to own MasterCard? So one way around, I'm a kind of value minded person who will buy MasterCard if it gets hammered because, you know, that's a rare opportunity as far as I can see. On the other hand, I'm a kind of, I really want to own MasterCard, but look, I will sit in Bank of America for the time being if that's, uh, if the market's not really giving me much by way of opportunities there. I sort of starting to lose my sense of self. I'm getting tempted to kind of rotate back again, I guess, which I suppose that's not a terrible or disreputable idea, but um, I, I'm still sort of thinking exactly what I want to let go of. And I'm mindful of my previous Oh, I sold this thing. I tend to be a bit enthusiastic at, at turning the tank around. In my case, I think there's a, I think there's a, a problem with pigeonholing yourself as well, though, isn't it? Is that you can say to yourself like, like I'm a growth investor. I will only invest in growth, and then you see these really good, really strong 
stocks that pay a dividend and maybe not growing quite as fast and, you know, maybe solidly classed as dividend stocks. And you don't want to look at these opportunities and say, well, I'm a growth investor, so I can't possibly buy those. So I think it's about the, the mindset for me has always been about just sort of trying to put risk on when I think there's opportunity for risk and take risk off when I think, you know, perhaps the opportunity for, for risk isn't quite there. So, um, yeah, that's what I'd be mindful of. I mean, it, it's been, it's been a strange month really it's everything seems to have just been up up and up and then this week everything just seems to have tempered slightly so um nothing's changed as far as i'm aware in terms of the the macro environment i think that all the problems that were there you know a month ago are still here today so uh, it's a funny old market so i think for me it was about taking the opportunities while i could because i i just don't sense we've hit a bottom yet I, I, that's not a call i don't really pan by these things I, i'm just thinking uh you know trying to react to the moment yeah, I don't sense we've hit a bottom. I saw um, a really interesting bit of research, and I'm not saying there's anything disreputable about this, but it does strike me that on the sort of trading side of things, where you really are attempting to time stocks uh, and sell them at highs and buy them at lows, and that's how you kind of intend to make your money rather than by owning businesses that are going to do well and produce cash for you, I saw a really interesting bit of um research put out by Bank of America, uh, who were saying that with the previous bull markets they've seen, they've only really begun when the following number is below, I think it's 20. Uh, and that is the trailing PE of the stock market plus um, CPI inflation levels. So at the moment, that's at about 28. Uh, the trailing PE is about 20 and uh, CPI in the States, this is sorry, is about eight or so percent. So roughly 28 or so. Uh, and they've said that, look, when you're looking at bear market rallies versus kind of new bull markets, new bull markets have always, without exception, begun when that number is less than 20. Um, and I wonder whether that's got anything to do with calls or whether that's just correlation, right? I mm. mean, it feels to me like it might also be the case that, look, they only ever began when a left-handed person made the first trade on the New York Stock Exchange or something like that. But I'm not particularly waiting for that as a sign to do stuff i mean clearly that's an economic factor and the one i just said isn't but um i really fascinating insight to me on the kinds of things that traders are interested in looking at to figure these things out i share your view for what it's worth i don't think we're out of the woods yet no, inflation just hit double digits in the uk i think there's sort of more trouble coming here and um as far as i can see rate hikes aren't really working either side uh, of the pond at least not yet uh, they take some time to settle in but i think it's going to get worse before it gets better yeah, that that's my sense as well at the moment. Um, I guess I'm sort of deferring to Druckenmiller in here, who I think is arguably, you know, the macro expert on this kind of subject. And he, he's quoted as saying only a month or so ago that uh, inflation has never, ever come back down to 2% without the interest rate climbing higher than the level of inflation. So if that is the case, we've got a lot of uh, rate hikes still to come. I think some of that inflation will dissipate because I think the commodity side of it uh, has driven quite quite a lot of that inflation. And I think that should come down on its own. I mean, I'm seeing that in the markets that I work in. Um, I'm seeing that the timber prices come down uh, even prior to any of the rate hikes. So, uh, and you can see that in iron and copper and you know all the other mined materials. So hopefully that will be the starting bit to get inflation down to maybe four or five percent and then interest rates can get above that and and, and do it the rest of the way but it, it's strange i think we're, we're getting a bit mystic maggie here and it's really not the way either of us invest it's just interesting and not interesting in the same vein i think 
Yeah, I think the way I think about this, and I think you're probably similar, is look, we're not going to buy things based on the idea that CPI is this number or that number or whatever. But macroeconomic features, insofar as they're really glaringly obvious, and we'll tell you about what other people are doing, they give you places that you might want to look at any particular moment. So if you think there's a recession coming, uh, and a lot of people think there is a recession coming, chances are utilities are going to be kind of expensive because people know they go quite well in recessions and so on and so forth. Um, uh, so, yeah, they're a kind of interesting guide to me as to where to look for cheap things. You see commodity prices coming down. It's very difficult not to see the price of southern copper coming down along with them, mm. um, which has come down quite a way, and it gets very tempting to just sort of roll things across and into that. Um, but it wouldn't be a case of, look, I'm buying this just because the commodity price is down or something like that. You need a, a kind of better view on, for one thing, why this business rather than some other business. I mean, macroeconomic features tend to affect classes of uh, businesses, some more than others, sure. But, um, you know, rising interest rates affect stuff like banks uh, and so on. But then you need a reason why you're going to have a look at JP Morgan rather than Bank of America, rather than Citigroup, rather than uh, anything else. You get the general idea. Um, so yeah it's an interesting thing I think it's worth being aware of I think there's some sort of value to knowing it but it's a small part of I guess what we think about fair enough should we see what smart money's been up to yeah we've been talking about what we're buying and selling as though anyone cares about that um, uh, and we, but we had a chance to look at some proper people uh, and what they do because it was 13F uh, deadline earlier this week uh, I had a look at two uh, the two I always look at which is Berkshire Hathaway partly because I own quite a bit of that stock at least quite a bit by my standards anyway uh, and Scion Asset Management, because I think it's fun. Uh, and these are two 13Fs that think about stocks in very different ways. So Warren Buffett, uh, investor, business owner, um, thinks that the way you should think about your return is not based on what you can sell the stock for, but what the business will produce. Michael Burry, absolutely the opposite of that. Uh, intends to buy things and then sell them again uh, and then buy some more things and then sell some other things or maybe sell them first and then buy them back again later by going short stuff. He's absolutely a trader here and he might well be informed by what earnings are going to do and so on, but he's basically a buy it, sell it kind of a guy. Um, so I'll run through these very quickly. Buffett was buying Ally Financial, Occidental Petroleum, Selenese, whatever that is, Paramount, Markel, McKesson, Activision, Blizzard, Chevron and Apple. Sold some stuff in US Bancorp, Kroger, General Motors, Store Capital, uh, completely out of Royalty Pharma, completely out of Verizon. Back to those two in a moment. Burry sold everything that he was holding in the US part of his portfolio, which was Bristol Myers Squibb, Bookings Holdings, Warner Brothers, uh, Alphabet Signa, Meta Platforms, Ovinitiv, Nexstar, Stellantis Global Payments and Sportsman's Warehouse, and bought himself another stake in Geo Group, which is prison former REIT. Um, what should we make of these things? Well, I guess I think I feel slightly vindicated by these. Uh, only slightly, I'll come back to why slightly, but both of these look like they're expressing pessimism uh, to me. So uh, Michael Burry obviously seems to be expressing pessimism there. He seems to think stock prices are going to go down, so he doesn't want to own many of them. Um, and maybe something like a really badly beaten down real estate thing, uh, which is probably going to enjoy steady demand, at least for the short term in Geo Group, um, is going to be okay, but the rest of it, will run out the way of all that stuff. Uh, Buffett doesn't make predictions about where stock markets or stock prices are going to be. It's not really his kind of game here, but he is moving very slowly into stocks. He had about 70 billion available, and you wouldn't expect him to have used all of that, but he's deployed about, in net terms, 4 billion, and I think one more in buybacks uh, for Berkshire last quarter. That's slowing down quite a bit from Q1, when there was a lot going on in terms of acquiring Allegheny and uh, various other stock investments as well. So that makes me think that he, I'm not the only one here struggling to see the stock market as a, a howling um, 
bargain here with both of these two thinking. I guess the lazy way to put it is it's looking a bit toppy. I mean, Buffett saying, look, stuff is trading at prices that are too high. Burry saying it's probably coming down, or at least I think it might be coming down. Um, so I feel kind of slightly vindicated here. Steve? Uh, Burry's 13F is is interesting because it's almost like he's having a bit of a laugh, isn't it? He, he sold everything off. He's bought a really tiny amount of Geo Group, and it's kind of like he's saying, you know, like, my portfolio is in prison until the market comes down. <laughs> that's, that's literally what he's saying. I think that's his little joke to the market here. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's on Twitter, isn't he? He's, he's, um, well, he's probably not at the moment. I mean, he's only on Twitter when he wants to tweet anything, and then he goes he, back off it again. Yeah, well, he's making all sorts of doom and gloom calls. And, I mean, the things he's saying, they, they look like they have merit, but, I mean, I'm just not... I'm just not of the mind to judge them. I think when they happen, or if they happen, it'll be one of those things where we'll be like, oh, yeah, that was obvious. But at the moment, I just don't see where this huge fall that he talks about is going to come from. I can see these earnings slippages coming. I think that's. I think we could all probably say that we're expecting uh, some gr earnings growth slowing or earnings slippages. I think but the, the sort of falls that Burry's talking about are, are, are massive. Uh, Buffett, on the other hand, is just buying really safe companies. Uh, Selenies is the one I meant to look at before I came on. I just had a quick uh, search. They're, um, they look like they're in polymer solutions, so they're a chemicals company. They're working, taking the oil and making uh, some kind of plastic solutions off the back of it. So that, that kind of ties in nicely with his general bullishness on oil. Um, I mean, he's he's on his way to buying Occidental. I think he would... He's not a million miles away from probably making a bid for that, I wouldn't imagine. Then Chevron Activision is his arbitrage player, which you and I, Steve, have had a good old chat about potentially joining him on. Ally Financial is a bit of a weird one. I don't really see the interest in that company. Um, and, and then there's a few sells across the board, and General Motors and Kroger and Star Capital are the ones I saw. I think Verizon as well was, was that the last of his Verizon stake, or is there a, a bit more? That was the last of his Verizon stake. He was quietly building that up without telling anybody about it, and then suddenly started unwinding it all again, uh, fairly swiftly, actually. I mean, here's why I only feel slightly vindicated by this. I look down the stuff that he's selling, so US Bank, Kroger, Store Capital, Royalty Pharma, Verizon. And as far as I can see, it's dividend stock, dividend stock, dividend stock, dividend stock, dividend stock, basically. Yeah. Uh, and this is slightly backward looking in the sense this is Q2 activity, right? Not Q uh, now activity. So it's at least six weeks out of date. But I mean, Buffett doesn't move fast on these things, particularly. My suspicion there is, yeah, I sort of feel like he's moving the opposite direction to me a little bit there. I mean, Royalty Farmer was never something he had a massive insight into. I think Charlie Munger sort of gave the game away a bit on pharma companies and said, look, sometimes it's an idea to just buy a load of them uh, if interest rates are really low and you've got money sitting around in cash and they're trading at low PEs, which they often do, and just have them kind of tick over for uh, dividend stuff rather than hmm. uh, leaving the money in cash, losing, losing by more uh, to inflation, I guess. So I feel only kind of slightly vindicated. You're right about that Chevron thing. That's become its fourth largest um, holding now. That's taken it past American Express, which is kind of... When I think of the Berkshire portfolio, I think of it as kind of very, very top heavy, mm. uh, down to about five stocks. And if you ask me what I think the kind of heavy things are, I'd say Apple, say Bank of America, uh, say American Express, Coke, and Kraft Heinz. They're probably the things that I think, once you get outside of that, nothing's having a really meaningful impact on this portfolio anywhere. But Chevron's come poking in there. It's now bigger than American Express, so I guess I have to take that seriously. And Occidental's become bigger than Kraft Heinz, so I take that fairly seriously as well. Um, so uh, lots going towards oil, 
uh, in that for what it's worth, which isn't something I profess to know a tremendous amount about. I'm prepared to think that this is my interesting way of watching, right? I guess uh, learning what people who know more about these things than me are doing. Yeah, I guess, uh, well, you, you've no need to have an oil exposure when Buffett's going to look after that for you, isn't it? I guess uh, you could you could uh, use Constant his... Tech no- exposure. Yeah. yeah, use his knowledge of having a rather large utility to let you know when a, when a good time to uh, buy or not buy oil is and, and not have to focus on that yourself. Interesting that he's still going heavy on Activision Blizzard, though. That's an interesting move for me, I think. Um, I think we're of the same opinion that we think this deal is probably going to go through perhaps with some caveat uh, that you know perhaps Microsoft has to or the new Activision will have to continue making games for other consoles I think is the most likely uh, way that that goes through which kind of ruins the point of purchasing in it if you ask me but I think they, the, the, the benefits of having Microsoft run a company that's had quite poor track record of looking after its staff will probably weigh high, heavier than uh, the negatives of having, you know, trying to create a mini monopoly on what are essentially crap games. What do you think? I think I agree with all of that. And in fairness, Paul was ahead of both of us on this uh, particular ARB thing. He owned it and then he stopped owning it, I think. But I seem to remember we talked about this on a podcast a while ago and uh, I seem to remember telling him I thought this was quite a good idea uh, that he Mm. had. I thought he had a fairly well-protected downside because worst case scenario is you've overpaid for a stock. Uh, and it's not like a random biotech that might produce nothing ever. Activision Blizzard is going to do stuff. You might find you get a bit of a drag. Share price will go down, but look, the business will be probably fine uh, going forward. Uh, best case scenario, where you get $95 a share for something you paid, I think it's about 80 at the moment uh, for, and it would have been less than that when he bought it. Uh, so I quite like this as an idea. The point about Activision then having to make stuff for uh, other consoles, I see that that's an issue. I think that's, assuming that the deal goes ahead with that caveat, that strikes me as a Microsoft issue, not an Activision issue, uh, Mm. for what it's worth. I mean, it becomes an Activision issue or an issue for the Activision shareholder, I guess, the Buffett or Paul Briscoe, and I've never mentioned those two names adjacently before. Um, But it becomes an issue for them if it means the deal doesn't go through or has to go through at a lower price or something like that, I guess. I mean their ambition is just to kind of get rid of this thing again, as far as I can tell, collect $95 a share in doing so, you can get uh, and then work out what to do with that afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree completely. And the other one that really sort of stands out, I guess, and is the McKesson Corp, um, because McKesson Corp, if I'm correct, is a healthcare company. Yes. He's moved just well, just recently moved out of all of his healthcare companies. He's taken a billion-dollar stake in McKesson. Do you know anything about them? No, uh, Sven has a video on them from a while ago that he quite likes about them. Um, I, all I knew was that they were a healthcare company. I should really know more about these things, but uh, I haven't got around to looking at that yet. I was getting them mixed up because I thought it, I was getting them mixed up with McCormick, which is the spices company. So I thought I knew something about them, but I thought I'd better just check my knowledge before I go. Well, why is Buffett buying a spice company? Uh, it turns out he's not. Um, so yeah, I just think yeah, I mean Buffett's portfolio is always an interesting portfolio. It's it's kind of like, um, it, well, uh, last year or the year before, we'd have been calling it a boomer portfolio, I guess. Um, but that's essentially what it is, isn't it? And it's a, it's a portfolio heavy on heavy on companies that produce a hell of a lot of cash. Yeah, it's the way Berkshire's kind of made its money. I mean, he wasn't always a, I guess he kind of don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you avoid being a boomer ever because it's to do with when you were born, right? But I think mm-hmm. he's probably older than being a boomer. So yeah. uh, I guess he was never a boomer, but he's always owned those kind of stocks, right? The the kind of Berkshire story is, 
you kind of compound slightly faster than everybody else. And over time, that puts you absolutely miles ahead in a mm -hmm. certain kind of way. And you just keep doing that bit by bit by bit. And eventually your, your streak's clear. Uh, what have you been looking at, Steve, in 13F land? Uh, a couple for me. And we'll start with um, the Duquesne family office, which is Druckenmiller's <laughs> portfolio. Um, he's... Um, as we've mentioned earlier, heavy macro investor. He's. Um, I was watching a couple of interviews with him. He's actually quite impulsive as well. So uh, when his research team, uh, they've been known to sort of bring him a, a stock and say, hey, look, I've done a couple of hours on this. What do you think? And then they'll pop for lunch and come back and he's put two billion on it. So, <laughs> um, so it is quite interesting looking through his portfolio and knowing that as well as what, what – you know what I knew previously, but um, I mean, his top prize are um, Eli Lilly, uh, CrowdStrike, Moderna, Datadog, and Palo Alto Networks. So, um, all pretty big additions as well. Um, Eli Lilly is 7%, the lowest is Palo Alto, adding 1.84%, but we're still talking big money in, in terms of this portfolio. Uh, sales wise, um, he's sold Amazon. Um, uh, nearly eight eight and a half percent of Amazon, just over eight and a half percent. He sold his puts on uh, the S P five hundred. Bit more Freeport McMorran, a bit more Smartsheet, and a bit more Tech Resources, uh, which was the one that confused us in the last thirteen F. His holdings are still the same as last time. He's got eighteen percent of his portfolio in Coupang, thirteen point seven percent in Microsoft, and then he's got Chevron, Eli Lilly creeping into fourth. So that is a big buy, and Freeport McMorran still at just under seven percent. So Steve, you know something about Eli Lilly? Yeah, I do. It's spelled E-L-I... No, uh, I know a couple more things than that as well. Uh, they're a drug company, and for a while we haven't talked about those yet, since I got a Bristol Myers Squid t-shirt and then sold the stock. Um, we don't tend to know huge amounts about drug companies, but here's why Eli Lilly's been catching attention lately from what I can see of it. They've got two things that are potentially quite exciting. One is an Alzheimer's drug, and if you think you've heard us talking about Alzheimer's drugs before, uh, then trust your instincts, uh, because... We were talking about Biogen, and where there was pessimism around Biogen, I think in general there's more optimism around Eli Lilly's uh, Alzheimer treatment for what it's worth. But the big thing they have is uh, a weight loss drug, which I think is done by way of injections, and they've had a lot of success with this kind of thing. So uh, the drug is called Tezepatide, I think, uh, which has delivered up to 22.5% weight loss in adults with obesity or overweight uh, conditions. So... As I understand it, this is a really big thing for obvious reasons of being able to uh, quote-unquote battle obesity um, using uh, drugs effectively to just help bring weight down. But um, when I was hearing about this, I heard somewhere that it's going to be kind of used as a kind of thing you take alongside other drugs that have a side effect for weight gain. So it's not just the case that people will be able to kind of, I suppose, cosmetically or even just by itself for other reasons, inject their way down to um, a BMI of whatever it's meant to be, 18 or something like that. Um, Steve, any thoughts on the prospect of kind of injecting yourself to lose some weight? Uh, sign me up. Um, <laughs> so, so, sounds great. Yeah, it sounds much better than the diet and running around. Um, but yeah, I'm just having a really look, a quick look through Eli Lilly's um, website while, while you were talking there, Steve. And they've got an interesting, um, interesting load of drugs. They're also an insulin um, producer. They're been acquiring like like crazy getting uh, quite a few uh, smaller sort of drug companies to boost that pipeline and looking at um alzheimer's as you said and this this new weight reduction pill they've they've got a hell of a pipeline on them it's a very interesting company i mean Druckenmiller obviously thinks there's something there's something really really uh in, interesting there for him so yeah that's a 
That's definitely an interesting move. CrowdStrike, Steve, do you know much about them? Uh, they're a cybersecurity outfit, of course. Uh, so Palo Alto, I think, which you that's, mentioned earlier. That's um, right, yep. Uh, and I can't remember whether you mentioned any other ones as well, yeah, but those two stood them. out to me. Mm-hmm. These are ones where I struggle to know good from bad and what uh, I really want to look for in this sort of thing. Chris Hill says that um, cybersecurity is the, an area in your portfolio that you need to be exposed to. And I never really go in for need to be exposed to stuff uh, in general. But it is one where I really struggle to see good from bad and work out who the winners are in this. So I'm not sure quite what makes, I guess, at a very basic level, an investing talk for the moment. Never quite understand what any of these companies' moats is, uh, why CrowdStrike can't be copied by Palo Alto or why it's better or worse or any of these things. Um, yeah, and the problem that we now have is that Tom Bravo heard exactly what Chris Hill has said, the private equity company, <laughs> and they've bought SailPoint for $7 billion. They then went out and bought um, Amaplan for $10.7 billion, so that's two mm-hmm. of the biggest security companies. And they're now in talks to buy UK company Darktrace as well. Um, so they're sweeping up all of the cybersecurity companies. I feel like there's a, an amalgamation there of a really big sort of cybersecurity and identity sort of company on, on, on the horizon. Yeah, I don't think Chris said you have to buy all of them outright, did he? Uh, he just said you need to have some sort of exposure to them. <laughs> well, they're stopping us. <laughs> they're stopping us. You can't get shares in Tom Bravo. I think they're a private equity company, if I remember correctly. Uh, they may well be, actually. Yeah, Dark Traces are new as the UK's kind of cybersecurity offering. Um, I guess there's other sort of um, cybersecurity companies that I've sort of heard of and are, are vaguely aware of swilling around, like Cloudflare, I think, and uh, Checkpoint or whatever it is, something like that, uh, which was the one that looked really cheap not so long ago, but I'm not quite sure what or why that would be the case. I've just had a Google of Tom Bravo to see what else they've been buying. They've also bought Ping Identity, which is Opta's biggest competitor. And they've also bought a company called Bottomline, which is a financial technology and financial uh, security company. So they're going really, really heavy on this. They've spent nearly $25 billion, uh, $25 billion here, uh, plus Darktrace acquiring all these these companies. So hell's bells. They look like they're betting quite heavily on that. It's a nice idea if you can, isn't it? Try and hoover these things up while they're, I, I suppose, kind of cheap uh, in a certain way. Yeah. Any any thoughts on the top holdings at Duquesne? I'll read them again for you if you need them, Steve. I heard Chevron was in there. I heard Coupang was in there. What was second? Sorry, was it Microsoft? Microsoft, yeah, nearly 14%. Yeah, so he's never really moved out of Microsoft, has he? It feels like Buffett's version of Apple is, you know, Druckenmiller's Microsoft there. Coupang at the top is... That feels to me like a company that you you buy that in one of two ways. One is if you're making a kind of broadish bet on e-commerce. It's kind of, and I hate myself for saying this, but South Korean Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's quite a lazy way of putting it. So apologies to anyone who wants to point out that that's different in various ways because that's obviously true. But that feels to me like a company that you buy in one of two ways, right? You either buy it as kind of a broad sweep on uh, e-commerce, then in that case, and think to yourself, sure, I'll have that one, and I'll have Mercado Libra, and I'll have Amazon, and I'll have probably Etsy, and I'll have maybe eBay. Uh, and you get the general idea, um, plus the things that kind of uh, facilitate these sorts of things. Um, alternatively, uh, but if you're doing that, sorry, you don't make that your biggest holding by an absolute mile, or you buy it because you think you know something very, very specific uh, about this kind of company. And I'm guessing Drucker Miller probably does because you don't make that your biggest holding if you're just thinking, yeah, sure, sort of e-commerce, right? It's strange, really, because, I mean, when 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 you get nearly 20% of a, a portfolio in, you tend to find... Um, 
you tend to get a story as to why um, he's doing this. Do you know what I mean? That's such a huge part of the portfolio. You would expect him to come out with maybe, you know, like a couple of pages or an interview where he says, this is this is where I'm doing it. And the only link I've seen is that uh, essentially he was in pre-IPO um, and Coupang have a member on their board who is also uh, at Duquesne Capital. So I wonder if this is just overspill from having a, you know, a really large early uh, interest in the company, uh, which has obviously grown the size of the portfolio. Not really sure on that. Outside of um, that, though, I mean, Microsoft Steady is a is a very steady Eddie, great grower, has been a fantastic winner. Uh, and then Chevron, Freeport, McMorrin, her is um, commodity exposure. And then Eli Lilly slipping in at fourth is, that, I mean, they obviously see some potential there. Um, the other one I've been looking at is Greenlee. And Greenlee is Josh Tarasoff. We've spoke about him before. We think he's a bit of an up-and-comer. He was very early onto Amazon, wrote a very in-depth thesis on um, why you should buy Amazon and even projected all the growth out and got it very, very close, uh, which is, which is you know, was good for a young investor. Um, he's been very quiet. Two buys, uh, Amazon and Google. Um, his sales were Peloton. Sold a little bit of Spotify, a little bit of Trupanion, and a little bit of Monday.com. <clears throat> like Druckenmiller's very, very concentrated portfolio. He's got nearly 23% in Amazon, 18.5% in Salesforce, 15.5% in Brookfield Asset Management, nearly 12% in Alphabet, and 8.5% in Shopify. Um, that takes up the vast majority of his portfolio. Um, any thoughts on that, Steve? I like a lot of what you said, and they make me want to learn more about him. And then somehow I sort of... This is wildly hubristic on my part. And then I hear that he sold Peloton, which implies to me that he once owned Peloton. Um, and that sort of automatically makes me wonder about someone who kind of owns this stuff. There's all kinds of reasons he might have owned it, right? And I'm not going to start saying I knew better than anyone uh, that we're talking about on this show at the moment. But Peloton never struck me as a good idea. It just never did, basically, right? I get that. I, probably that's because I was failing to see the kind of things that had potential that never really materialized in a certain way but i'm sort of surprised that someone who clearly doesn't buy an awful lot of stuff right because they have a very concentrated portfolio which tells me they're a careful buyer of things someone like that came to own something like peloton um yeah i mean that's a sense it was a very small part of his portfolio so i wonder if it was just a small bet on on peloton uh, some kind of recovery i'm looking at it was about three percent of his portfolio um that's the highest it's been. Um, but that's had a, a huge collapse in price, so you'd hate to say, uh, you know, just trying to look and see if I can see when he's bought it, but he doesn't actually say on Will Wisdom, which is a shame. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that's had a huge fall. I've got the rest of them here, Steve, so I may as well give hmm. you one here because it's a very small portfolio. So underneath shop is Netflix, 6.67, uh, Trupanion, which is the pet insurance company at 5.76, Spotify at 5.52%, Monday.com at 314 Barefoot Capital, 2.12, and then there was Peloton, but that's now all gone. So, so with 10 the, positions. With the exception of Brookfield Asset Management, I think, which you mentioned in there, this is very much an anti-Buffett uh, portfolio, right? And I'm not saying there's anything good or bad or otherwise about that. It's actually similar principles in many ways, right? Presumably find something you know about and then go and do intelligent things within that space. But this space is tech and forward-looking consumer tech adjacent things mm. i guess loosely call it right so um all of that stuff is kind of fairly uh technology heavy which i guess that's a good thing if you kind of know where you're looking on this i guess 
that's the difference between the people we've been talking about and uh, and Josh Tarasov. Josh Tarasov is is a lot younger. He's half the half and more the age of Buffett, although quite a lot of people are. Uh, I think he's <laughs> forty one, um, which you know, Druckenmiller's I think is in the seventies now. Is a Buffett will be ninety two next week, I think, and uh, uh, Burry Burry's strange. <laughs> Barry, I think, is close to sixty. Is he? So yeah, he's even way younger than way younger than Burry as well. So yeah, that was my thirteen S. I thought those four were very interesting. Would be interested to know if you guys look at um, any in the comments or which thirteen Fs you look at and um, yeah, and tell us what they've been up to. Yeah, uh, should we talk about Charlie Munger's one? Uh, yeah, quickly. go for it. Yeah, nothing happened. Okay, right. Uh, so, on to the next thing then. Uh, Steve sort of teased ahead a little bit, but we've got some questions here from people um, who posted them in the comments, and we really like getting your questions. We did away with the midweek footsie because it was becoming kind of cumbersome in a certain way, but that doesn't mean that we're not interested in hearing what you guys want us to talk about and doing some serious thinking about it and chatting about it and sharing our sort of thoughts and discussions uh, with you guys. So, let's kind of start with the one that sort of steve teased beforehand then in that case sam late i think is how you pronounce that name sorry if i'm wrong about that but who are the rising star investors he asks for me as well as being a great stock picker and trend observer they must have a good grasp of macroeconomics how have they performed over the last 10 20 years and what do they invest in slash what's their investing style i love listening to invest to interviews, he continues, uh, with the all-time greats, many of which still outperform today, but I'd love to hear more about the young blood, younger than 55, let's say, uh, and how they see the investing world over the next 50 years. I'm guessing, Steve, you've got Josh Tarasov then uh, written down as your name for this. Well, I was thinking about the medium in which we actually... Um, so, yes, is the answer to that question. So I go <laughs> that. But the medium in which we sort of like interact with these investors has changed, I think. And I think there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of good investors on Twitter that don't don't want to grow their portfolios to massive amounts. I wonder if we've had that kind of that distribution of knowledge uh, in the stock market has been that we have lots of talented small investors that don't have the uh, you know don't have the uh, well they just don't want to run massive funds. I guess is what I was, I was trying to say. So so yes, I've got Josh Tarasoff. I think Josh Tarasoff is the best sort of uh, of the young sort of under or around 40s kind of money managers. Outside of that, uh, I was looking at Chris from the Seeking Alpha Service, potential uh, multi-baggers. He's a really interesting uh, fellow. He does some really interesting breakdowns. There's Leandro from Invesquotes. He's an Italian, or he might be Spanish, actually. I might have just offended him. Fairly certain he's Spanish investor. Um, he covers a lot of European growth stocks, and he's really good and really hot on semiconductors and things like that. So he's a really interesting follower. And the last one was Eugene Ng. Um, he's from Vision Capital. He's a young um, young investor. He's on Seeking Alpha, and he might be on Substack as well. He's really good on uh, Twitter because he does uh, earnings breakdowns that are really easy to understand, and he explains in the next sort of six or seven threads you know, what it all means. And he really just do a really good uh, breakdown of everything. And his portfolio to me is very similar to mine. So I guess I'm naturally drawn to uh, his stock picking. Um, they're the sort of four that off the top of my head. There's obviously Paul Briscoe as well, but... Um, is he under 55? Not sure. Mm, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe pin that one just in case. Anyone for you, Steve? Uh, so I don't have anyone quite as hot as you had there, but I take your uh, thought here that the people who 
uh, are likely at sort of hedge funds and so on are probably a bit more trading mindset than we are and so on. But here's someone that I listen to a fair bit when they talk that we haven't mentioned on the show before. Uh, and that's a guy called Fabio over at Capital Mindset as a YouTuber. Um, he thinks, I think, in broadly similar ways to me, which isn't supposed to be a compliment for him. It's supposed to be a reason that I find it easy to understand what he's saying. And he says the things that I'm thinking, but better than I'm thinking them. Uh, and I come away from all of his videos pretty much feeling like I've learned something. So I, I found him when I was looking for a video on a company called MVR, which is a US house builder that I've mentioned before. It's fairly thinly covered uh, by Wall Street or uh, general sort of, yeah, pretty much. Um, and he had a really nice breakdown on them. He was a little bit more pessimistic on them than I was, felt they were slightly overpriced and so on. But it gave me a really great way into thinking how he thinks about businesses, how he works out prices for stuff. He is one of these guys who eventually, at the end of the day, will whack numbers into a spreadsheet and decide whether or not to buy it based on the numbers he's punched into a spreadsheet. However, what I like about him is that that day is long. Uh, and that day involves a lot of reading before your very eyes uh, about the company and what it does and getting a feel for how to understand it. And that lends, I think, some credibility to the numbers that he's whacking into his spreadsheet rather than saying, most people think the numbers are going to be this, so I'm going to arbitrarily divide them in half uh, and then complain this thing is overpriced or something along those lines. I mean, he is, to my mind, uh, sensitive to the thought that when we estimate future earnings, we are supposed to be estimating them not just writing low numbers because they're low numbers uh, or something like that. Uh, so I've heard him talk about all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. He makes an awful lot of videos uh, for what it's worth, and I don't have time to watch or listen to all of them. And actually, some of them are more interesting to me than others, partly because some of them are about specific stocks that I'm not interested in. Uh, but he's someone who I think um, is a really, really interesting I don't want to say under the radar because that's slightly cliche, but YouTube I haven't heard many people talking about uh, along the way. One other thing about him, um, Steve, you mentioned it, uh, Eugene Ng, I think his stock picking is kind of similar to yours. Hmm. Fabio, when he does uh, his portfolio reviews things, I think owns a portfolio that is sort of half yours, half mine, but he appears to have bought everything at better prices than we have. Right. Uh, basically. So it's everything that I kind of own and feel like I'm pleased about owning, but he bought them, uh, I don't know, roughly half what we paid for them, uh, more or less. So so that's my kind of youngish guy. I don't know how old he is actually for what it's worth, but I'm pretty sure he's under 55. Um, yeah, have a listen to him uh, if you're interested in someone that I think is uh, worth listening to in terms of style and approach and ideas and so on. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. Um, what Did we have another question? We have another loads of questions. Let's keep going with the questions. So Noob Investor, who asked us last week's question that we talked about for so long that we ran out of time for the other part of his question, asks us, are free platforms a good idea or do they encourage trading and trying to time the market? Or both? Or neither? Uh, this is... this is I don't think this is a tough question, but I think... A lot of people blame free platforms for bad behavior. And generally, that's my interpretation that I think I'm getting out of this question. So they're, they're almost unequivocally bad for the market in that they do encourage people to be in and out of trades quicker than they perhaps should be. Um, and they, they probably don't teach people to realize that, uh, you know, the only real benefit you have over the uh, the people with um, high-speed connections to the net, uh, to networks is time. Um, they will beat you to the punch nine times out of ten so the the best thing you can do is hold long um 
so that leads to overtrading, and um, and as we've seen with trading two and two, they've started to sneak in some fees now to sort of punish the overtrading uh, sort of arm, or at least to, to make money for the overtrading. So yeah, I guess they're a bad thing, but they, they're, they're really bad because they promote bad behaviour, and the bad behaviour is uh, that comes from yourselves. So if you can be disciplined uh, enough to not be in and out of stocks all the time and not buying and selling 20, 20 or 30 times a day, then they're they're great things. Um, they're, they're so much better than doing something like this at Hagrid's Arms and you save so much money. What do you think, Steve? I think they're a great thing. Uh, I don't think there's anything much wrong with them. And I'm wary about the issue of um, overactivity um, as someone who said that right back at the start of the show that I was sort of wondering about reshuffling again, having reshuffled before and so on in ways that, to be honest, I almost certainly wouldn't have if I had my entire portfolio stuck in um, Harvey down say, and was getting nicked for X fraction of a percent and so on every time I tried to reshuffle the thing. I'm not sure about that. I don't feel like that's a particular... It feels to me like blaming McDonald's for a kind of obesity um, crisis in a certain way. I get that it's more complicated uh, than that in a certain way, both in the McDonald's case, actually, for what it's worth, and uh, this one. But I tend to think free trading platforms are a good idea, and I think... When I'm working out whether or not trading is a good idea, um, I tend to think the answer is probably no for someone like me. But I think that might be a feature of me rather than a feature of trading in certain ways. I feel like if you really don't have to, I feel like you should basically pick a style of stock market activity, let's call it that, that suits your kind of disposition and temperament and so on and so forth. Mm. If you're going to buy something and you're going to immediately want to take profit on it, you should probably trade rather than sit around waiting for long-term investing things because, you know, you might be investing in Teladoc, which you have to spend a lot of time looking at some red stuff on your screen uh, and that sort of thing. But you need a process that you understand and that works for you and that appeals to you as much as anything. If uh, listening to Buffett going on for hours and hours and saying the same thing at every Berkshire Hathaway meeting is your kind of thing, um, then uh, you can probably see free trading platforms as a nice kind of luxury if you're more interested in making fast money here uh, and you want to listen to CNBC contributors. Nothing against that idea, by the way. I don't share the kind of Berkshire Party line that trading is all speculation and basically immoral. I mean, it's fine for people that mm. want to do it, but it's not an activity that appeals to me particularly. Um I think free trading platforms are probably a good thing here. So I'm, I'm wary a bit about ragging on trading too much uh, intrinsically. I think the concern is that people do it kind of badly um, or get themselves into stuff without really understanding what they're doing and it goes wrong. But that's true of pretty much anything, that you shouldn't do it without really understanding what you're doing here. I think that's, yeah, the key issue is accessibility is always going to cause some kind of harm on something like this, isn't it? That, because the harm is in trading is losing, uh, you know, losing your ass on a bad trade or, you know, following a trade that's shot up uh, only to watch it come straight back down. Uh, they're not really the fault of trading platforms. Uh, they're, the, they're the fault of uh, perhaps perhaps a lack of, um, well, yeah, no, it is. It's a lack of education on the, on the probably on our school system in front of actually teaching people um, how these things work, I guess. Mm. Back to our man Sam uh, for a moment. Then this is my this is the kind of fun question uh, for us, I guess. So, what sort of companies would make good investments for the developed world's aging population? I guess just to, he carries on in a moment, but I guess what he's meaning is given that the developed world has an aging population, rather than what should old people buy. Uh, obviously, as healthcare, uh, and he says he thought about funeral care, but doesn't think that there are many public companies in that sector. Mostly small businesses. Um, Steve, what do you think old people like? 
<laughs> well, I think that's a really tricky kind of thing to 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 answer. I guess if we were thinking, uh, I guess if we were thinking in terms, you'd be thinking Vici might be a good one because of casinos and gambling. Uh, it kind of is an attraction of uh, of older people. I guess we would have to look at something like Welltower, which is probably one of the biggest care providers in the US. That's a a pretty interesting company. But outside of that, I've read in two books uh, recently because I, I have just finished my 25 books for the year. Um, and I, um, I, I, I've read in two of them now that they think that the first person to be, uh, to get to a thousand years old has already been born and they're not talking about it in ways that you're just going to be able to pop a pill and you know, that will extend your life. They're talking about, um, basically that the way that we can now, or at least in some degree, reprogram, um, genetic code and grow things that we were never previously able to grow. Um, even down to growing skin, which is something strange I, I read uh, in one of the books the other day. Apparently, they, when they use um, cadaver skin, uh, I'd never sort of truly understood where that came from. I assumed some poor fellow had fallen off a motorbike and they were they were currently harvesting him in another room. But actually, that's all been grown from a single person who donated her body to medical science and they've been keeping her skin alive for like 60 years or something like that, which wow. is a gruesome but also interesting fact. But yeah, so they think that essentially when body parts and, and organs will be getting wa- uh, will get worn out, there will be a price that you can pay to have them uh, grown in a laboratory and put back into you, which will obviously extend your life uh, quite considerably. Especially if you've got something like kidney failure in your forties, um, you know that would that would that would almost definitely solve that problem with minimum uh, minimum rejection. So. I guess the question really is, is what kind of future do you see? Do you see that future that I'm talking about? Or do you see the future looking like the sort of future I described where you just pop down to Las Vegas every so often and you spend all your time in a care home? And that's a really tricky question to answer, I think. Steve, do you have any insight on that? I initially sort of started off thinking about this. I have a couple of thoughts coming up, but I sort of set myself up to think, well, okay, what does a kind of aging population appreciate? Uh, and I thought, well, they like overcooked vegetables. So I wondered who owned Harvester and whether you could buy shares in them. Uh, and they like eating dinner at sort of five o'clock in the evening. So I thought, what can we do about that? And I didn't really come up with much of an investment idea. And I thought maybe you should buy shares in ITV because they all like Coronation Street and Emmerdale. And then I realized this was a fairly sort of futile exercise on my part. So I went off to do some more serious kind of research about these things. Uh, And I found this thing I remembered seeing once on Free Trade sort of many, many years ago called the iShares Aging Population ETF. Uh, See, someone will do this job for you. Uh, And its investment objective says the fund seeks to track the performance of an index composed of developed and emerging market companies. So uh, actually, this is not just to Sam's question, the developed world's aging population, but also emerging too. But we might find some things here that cover both, which are generating significant revenues from the growing needs of the world's aging population. Aging population defined as people aged 60 years and above. Okay, so I had a look down this with Steve last week, actually, and uh, I was going to get Paul to have a guess at this, but he's not here and probably no bad thing because I suspect he would have been here until next week's podcast if I let him have a go at this. (laughs) But predictably, the first four things here are biotechs, um, which is not a massive surprise, interested in treating the kind of diseases and conditions that people get as a result of living longer uh, or are more susceptible to as a result of living longer. Fairly predictable stuff there. Um, Then the fifth biggest thing on the list is not a biotech anymore. Uh, The ones below it on this first page all are. But I'll give you a chance, listener, to have a quick guess at what you think the fifth thing on the list might be uh, that would be relevant to old people, specifically people over the age of 60. Steve had a couple of guesses. They're pretty good guesses. They're both wrong. Uh, You're also wrong, uh, dear listener. It is, in fact, Robin Hood. Um, That is apparently somehow relevant to... 
the needs of the aging population. What they want is to uh, have their order flow sold for cash to Goldman Sachs. That's absolutely mental, isn't it? I, I actually forgotten <laughs> what the answer was, and I'm equally shocked by it the second time. <laughs> It's absolutely bonkers. Like, where the hell? Who who buys that? Is Robin Hood in charge of this ETF? Uh, almost certainly not. It's um, BlackRock, I think, is in charge of this ETF. One way Sell or BlackRock. Uh, I saw some other fun things that are um, apparently relevant to old it. people at the moment. Uh, one is Polaris. So old people like power sports. Mm -hmm. um, apparently that strikes me as unlikely. I actually thought cruises might do better, but they don't appear on this list anywhere. Um tractor supply company uh for for you know when you want a tractor in your retirement and yep. so on for for tractoring things um but anyway uh actually i think i heard they don't supply tractors which is no, uh, so sort of weird for that name hardware store isn't it mm, something like that but yep that uh that also features on this list unsurprisingly this list is actually quite a well diversified etf uh for what it's worth one well, nothing 40 odd positions or so just based around that kind of theme of well, I suppose fairly tenuous in some cases, connection to the needs of the over 60s. Uh, but there's a decent amount of real estate and there's a decent amount of biotech in there. Well, Tower doesn't feature in there for some reason. I can't quite figure out. That struck me as the obvious thing too. But in general, real estate, I thought, struck me as a, a positive kind of trend there. If you think people are living longer, you presumably think that population is growing um, as we kind of increase people at the lower end of the age and don't lose them from the top end. That I think puts pressure on space. So I would have been looking if I was thinking in the developed world in America at something that owns a load of uh, coastal real estate, one way or another. Uh, Camden Property is one in the Sun Belt. That's quite a niche sort of idea that I've got going on there. But I would be thinking about those sorts of things. Uh, the ones on here are Medical Properties Trust and um, Global Medical REIT and some other things that are sort of similar to that. This this uh, ETF owns quite a lot of cash, actually, for what it's worth. Yeah, that's so do, so do the older generation. Uh, mm. What about Manchester United? Does that make the cut, Steve? I'm just thinking there'll be no young people uh, uh, looking to come along and replace the uh, ageing population who support Manchester United at the moment. No, uh, that's another thing, of course, that Elon Musk is attempting to not buy. Um, and unlike, I'm also attempting to not buy it, but you know, unlike him, no one's pursuing me through the court to go and buy Twitter. Uh, but yeah, no one's, no one wants Manchester United, including these things. They're too busy with their, um, power sports RVs from Polaris. Right. Uh, so yeah, real estate and medical stuff, I guess, is what I would think of as relevant here. I wonder whether sort of hardware tractory stuff is to do with increasing need for food or something along those lines. Uh, so think population growth, I suppose, is our fairly impressionistic approach to these sorts of things hmm. uh enough to do with macro trends that we don't understand thanks for the question anyway sam do write us another one uh, i enjoyed i enjoyed thinking about this very much even if i had nothing of any use to say at all <laughs> from an investment perspective roughly the story of how i approach this podcast um which you know it's slightly different to paul who thinks about it very little and then has nothing to say of any substance of these things uh steve have you seen anything in earnings recently that's caught your eye the well, lots, but I think the the only one we've really got time for is Adyen. Um, as a company, I don't think we spoke about too much on the podcast. I'm I'm not sure how much we've covered it, um, really. But um, we'll just quickly go through what what their earnings are. So they're a they're a high margin, profitable Dutch fintech uh, sort of slash payment provider. Um, it's a pretty expensive looking stock. Um, 
Uh, it has 59% EBITDA margins and converts 87% of that EBITDA into free cash flow. So that puts it in the top 10 businesses in the world for this metric and is only just behind Visa. So uh, quite quite interesting. Uh, opening in on Thursday, it was down about 12% and it was only on a small miss. So um, I've got the figures here for you. Uh, so payment volume was up 60%. You've got to think that's on really, really tough comps. And they've still mm. grown payment volume by 60%. Uh, so that, that trickles down to net revenue being up 37%, EBITDA up 31%, net income up 38%. The CapEx maintained about 5% of net revenue, which is uh, the a management target. Uh, margin, 59%, and actually a 2% fall from last year. And they wanted 65% uh, margins. So, um, you, know, that's, uh, you know, that's not a good sign. See, 1% of it was actually attributable to um, hiring and charity. So headcount grew by about 15% um, this year. So when tech are sacking people, Adyen are sucking these people up. Um, they also supported UNHCR's uh, fundraising and relief work in Ukraine. They matched all donations that came in from their shoppers and they absorbed all the transaction costs. So, uh, yeah, they deserve a little bit of applause for that. I think that's a really nice thing to do. Um, net revenue grew in every region, Steve. Um, EMEA uh, was up 30%. North America, 52%. Uh, Asia Pacific, up 53 Latin America, plus 25%. So all of that sounds great. So why was it down 12%? Um they missed on revenue and EBITDA, and this is all caused by something called the take rate. So the take rate is the fees that Adyen charges when people use its service. And these have actually fallen for the second half in a row. Uh, so they were at about 20.6 basis points, and they're now uh, all the way down at 17.6 basis points. And that's that's quite alarming, really, for a company like that. You don't want to see that happening. You want to see take rate going up as they you know, offer more and more value to the customers. They can charge them more and more. So um, I was looking for an explanation, and... Uh, and I, I've found it for you. Um, so they offer a tiered take rate system. Now, they didn't do this before. It was just a one one flat fee, and now it's tiered. So the more you use the system, the less you pay back to Adyen. So this is good and bad, depending on what your viewpoint is. So um, Adyen has always been viewed as quite an expensive payment platform um, processor. So this scheme encourages larger customers onto the platform. Uh, reduces prices for large customers already on the platform, incentivizing them to stay. And we're actually seeing signs that that's happening. Um, just in the last half, they've added Samsung, um, Indeed, Shopee, Monday.com, Dior, Uniqlo, uh, Iberostar, the hotel chain, mm -hmm. just, just in this half. And, I mean, we're adding those to names like Microsoft, Overmatch, Nike, Spotify, eBay, um, so yeah, it's definitely it's definitely working. So I guess the unfortunate thing is these are linked. So if the take rate is down, revenue has to be down, and EBITDA has to be down. Um, even if you're growing, because the take rate is is depleting uh, faster than that, they're actually increasing revenue. So uh, this could get a little bit worse um, as Adyen continues to attract big customers and doesn't attract so many smaller customers. Um, I thought it was a Still a stellar report, Steve. It's still an expensive kind of stock. Uh, I'm not in a rush to add to this stock. It's one that's in my portfolio. But uh, did you have any thoughts? I have two thoughts uh, for what it's worth. One is that, yeah, you aren't in a rush to add to this stock. I wonder whether you should have been earlier today. Have you seen what it's done? Um, yes, all the way today. back, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Almost all the way back, yeah. So it's now down about three and a bit percent. Uh, you pointed out correctly that it came down about 10% after those things. But... Um, it looked like an expensive stock and 
it sort of still does look like an expensive stock if you factor in some slight bad news and actually now not much of a decrease in price uh, for what that's worth. But I, I'm not particularly a growth investor or I don't label myself as such. I don't really label myself as anything. But if I were a growth kind of investor or if I labeled myself as such, this is a kind of thing I would want to be owning. Uh, stuff is growing and stuff is growing quickly. And I get that there's a sort of take rate issue of a sort there. It looks like an expensive stock. Um, and when I hear payment processes, I start thinking of all kinds of things. I think of sort of PayPal, and I thought, sort of think of Square, and I sort of think of Stoneco, and I sort of think of Adyen, uh, and these kind of things. Um, and I sort of wonder, apart from geographically, um, sort of a couple of those are US-based, one of those is Amsterdam-based, I think, uh, or Dutch-based anyway, and one of those is Latin America-based in Brazil. Um, what sort of marks out the difference between Adyen, which looks like a really expensive stock at the moment, and Stoneco, which really doesn't look like a very expensive stock at the moment? Both sort of payment processes, uh, clearly e-transaction, sorry, payment processes are, are a positive area to be in going forward. Why pick the expensive one here? I think the idea here, the, the reason Adyen is so egregiously priced in comparison is, is a couple of things, really, is that currency risk is a really big mm -hmm. thing. Inflation risk generally should be a, a massive thing, South America over um, over Europe. And the other thing as well is that Stone Co has a bit of a credit risk as well, which Adyen is not necessarily as exposed to. Um, so... Uh, just general thoughts. They're, they're, they're scrapping over different subsections of business too. So I think Stoneco and, well, Melly to a degree, are products of their environment. So they're South American fintechs built for the exacting needs of South America and sort of Latin, uh, more Latin America, I guess, more broadly. Whereas Adyen is different. It's built for it to be almost like a, um, a global solution. Uh, and it wants to branch out into more financial offerings. And it's doing this. So at IPO, this was literally an, uh, an online payments platform, but now it can handle online and offline payments. It can help with financial compliance. It can help with customer onboarding. It can help detect and prevent fraud, which are all areas which are adding little bits of extra values. You know, something that Stoneco and um, Melly both can do to some degree, but not to the sort of not to the scale that Adyen does. The reason I think it's uh, so expensive is it, just is because um, people kind of think that they've missed out on Visa and Mastercard, and they see that Adyen is basically branching out into be this big like, sort of financial monster with similar kind of margins, and it's nowhere near the, and, and, you know the kind of valuations that those two companies are at. And thinking, well, I've got to have me some of that, no matter what the price is, because it doesn't really matter. Because you know, in five years' time, it'll probably be treble the size of business at the rate it's growing. And to be fair to them, they've not been wrong so far. Adyen is growing like a weed. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things I would point out, though, just before we we do shuffle on, is that um, credit where credit's due to Stone Corp, Mercado Libra, D Local, and even Pagsacoera, um, they're all um, proving to be very, very tough competition. I mean, if you flip back up to um, the the net revenue growing, net revenue in Europe was plus 30, North America plus 52, Asia Pacific plus 53, but only plus 25 in Latin America. And when you compare that to the growth rates that these four companies are throwing out, that tells me that they're winning in Latin America. And, that um, you know, Adyen has even gone to the point of actually building um, building a, a, a quarters, an area, an area of business in Latin America to try and localize that service and compete with these guys. But they seem to be they seem to be kicking ass at the moment. Yeah, Adyen kind of first came onto 
your radar and by extension my radar because things that appear on yours sometimes then make their way onto mine mm. uh when it sort of transpired that ebay was starting to use them instead or about to start using them instead of paypal right that's right yep yeah which is a really interesting kind of business to keep an eye on and have a look at i still find it hard to kind of get there with i have a lot more digging on that to do before i can get myself to kind of pay those uh multiples that they're interested in selling it out at the moment but it's one that goes on my list for if there was a massive crash which i don't know based on what we were saying at the beginning i guess there might be uh do you have anything else on this one steve or should we wrap up there that's it cool um i was just looking at stoneco a little bit on my screen here and it appears to me that unbeknownst to me they've reported earnings just now so i'll have to go and have a read of that it says it's a 63 minute read so i'll hide from my wife and child for an hour or so thanks for listening everybody uh and we will see you at the same time next week hopefully with paul back again once he's made his way out of the camp he's been interned in